The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota, as part of the weekly Dharma series. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. It's nice to see everybody tonight. Welcome to all the new folks. We often encourage people because so much of the time when you come to the center, we, we're sitting together in silence. To take the time when you're walking in and when you're leaving to be fearless and introduce yourselves to one another. It's really nice, especially if you want to dig in over the long time, a long term. It's really nice to have some friends that are practicing. So if you don't currently know people who are practicing, there are people in the room who are practicing, <laughs> but you got to get to know them. So I'll just put that plug in. So uh, we've been, over the last three months, months looking at this list, this model the Buddha used quite often called the seven factors of awakening. It's just the Buddha uh, mapping out the wholesome qualities that, when in balanced, allow insight to develop. The mind naturally sees what it doesn't see or sees what it hasn't seen yet. So it's not about me trying to have insight, trying to get the, to the bottom of stress. Like, why? Why is my heart so tight? This is, in fact, the case with everything. Like, if we want something to happen, the sign of basic wisdom is to not spend our time wanting something to happen, but because we want something to happen, we reflect, well, what are the causes and conditions that support that thing happening? I mean, even something as mundane as wanting to be wealthy. Desiring to be wealthy is not the cause to become wealthy. That clearly breaking it down, understanding it systematically, what leads to wealth, well, that might help. Or what gets in the way of accumulating wealth. Well, it's the same thing with... Uh, States of calm, like if we want to be calm, if we want to be happy, or a more loving human being, a more kind human being, then we have to start to reflect, well, when the mind is kind, what are the supporting conditions supporting that kindness? Or what was the mind doing previously that supported the arising of the kindness, or the wisdom, or the gratitude, or any positive or wholesome state. Well, this is the Buddhist map of that. So we're about to go on to the next category, the next map the Buddha used quite often called the Four Noble Truths next week. But I thought we'd take some time to do a practice review and just to have people check in about their practice. It's surprisingly useful to hear other people ask questions or share their reflections about what's working or not working in the practice. So we'll set aside more time. If there aren't any questions or comments, I'll begin to talk about the Four Noble Truths, which we'll probably spend the next maybe month or so on, maybe even a little longer. So any questions you have that have come up, questions about the Buddhist teachings, questions about what it's like or what it means to have a mind and how to work with it, this is a good time to bring it up. So what comes to mind? Or anything about these seven factors of mindfulness, investigation, 
energy or the application of the mind, rapture, tranquility, concentration, and equanimity. These are the seven factors we've spent the last three months looking at for those of you who are new tonight. Questions about your practice? Yeah, Johnny. Could you say something about the difference between an intention versus a desire? Tend to be mindful of how that differs from desiring. Yeah, it's a really good question. So if you didn't hear, Johnny asked, what's the difference between an intention, the intention to be mindful, and a desire to be mindful? And it really has to do with how the mind, it's an insight actually, how the mind understands desire or intention. Intention is is just that movement in the mind. You know, it's like the mind intends, it's a volitional movement to get something, to become something, to get rid of something. And uh, that, of course, is nature. But when our minds misunderstand the nature of desire or the nature of intention, I misunderstand it and I think it's me, I want that. Like we could in any moment being here, you know, especially if you had a hard day, the desire, the intention to be home in bed could arise. And if we're not careful, we can identify with that intention. It's like, Oh, I want to be home in bed. As opposed to, there is that desire to be home in bed. It's like, I have all kinds of desires. Fortunately, I don't identify with them all. If I did, I'd probably be in trouble and really stressed out. You know, if we believed all the desires that arise in our mind, that would really be hard to bear. I mean, it's already hard to bear all the desires that we do identify with. We just take them personally. And basically, we've constructed a somebody, me, who needs this in order to be happy. That's because we've identified with the desire. But I can have a desire and not identify with it. And it doesn't mean it's bad. So it's to not identify with a desire or an intention isn't the same as somehow thinking that's a bad desire. Or that will be harmful if I act that out. I, we don't want to identify with either the good or the bad desires. And this is so interesting to see, like, you know, as we learn about the practice, we learn about things like being mindful, being present in the moment. We start to recognize the value, how functional it is, and it really leads, supports being skillful in life and so many normal situations or just go better when we're mindful, let alone life as a whole. So because the mind is recognizing the value of it, quite naturally the intention to be mindful, the desire to be mindful, the aspiration to be mindful will arise over and over again in the mind. In fact, we're setting that desire in motion. Some desires are quite useful or intentions are quite useful. But we don't need to construct a mark of a somebody who's being mindful. It's like extra. It doesn't actually help. This is what I meant earlier. What are the causes and conditions? What are the supporting causes to become mindful? 
Well, one is the desire, like the mind has to recognize the value of it. And because that recognizing the value of mindfulness causes the mind to pay attention, like when there's mindfulness present, then the mind is paying attention, like how did that just come to be? And when the mind isn't being mindful, the mind is paying attention, like what's happening that's keeping the mind from being mindful? Or is this being mindful? Right? So the mind's always interested in cause and effect. That's a really good basic definition for preliminary wisdom. A mind that is interested in cause and effect. How things come to be. How things go away. Imagine if, you know, once our, we had sort of a functioning reflective mind, you know, maybe as a six-year-old or something, Imagine if we had spent, like the most important thing at that point was to begin this reflection. How is it that this mind gets into really heavy, contracted states? How is it that this mind experiences lightness and love, ease, clarity, skill? If we had been a study, taken that up as a study in our sixth year, we would learn, we would have learned a lot by now. So it's not that desire itself is bad. That's why uh, we often use, in terms of Buddha's, the Buddha's teachings, we often use the word tanha, clinging or grasping, to point to when there's desire plus identification. So desire is like life energy. The mind naturally desires this, And, you know, fear is just the opposite of desire. It's really desire, too. It's like desiring to get away from something. So it's just part of being sentient, a a living being. It's to desire. But what is it that our mind, you know, it takes desire, and what does it turn it into? We construct this drama, this personal drama of a somebody who needs something, who needs to get rid of something. Does that make sense? Maggie, did you have a thought? Maggie's asking about equanimity and she gives the example of anger. And if there's anger and we have this value of equanimity, how do we relate to the anger skillfully? We don't want to repress it, but we also clearly recognize from our past experience, from observing others, how destructive the acting out of anger can be. So what's that balance or how do we handle afflictive emotions when they come up? Because in a way, like when we're really angry, we can see that that anger and the arising of that anger 
if we're looking, we can see, well, this, of course, when this happens, when the conditions are like this, somebody says this to me, I feel that's not just, that's not fair. They do it again, they do it again. We start to get angry. We can see the lawfulness of that anger building. And then the question is, well, how how do we be skillful? Well, the short answer is we just keep paying attention because if we act out the anger in a way that isn't skillful, if we continue to pay attention, we'll see that. And even more than that, right there when we see that the mind is getting angry, it's like when that emotion or that flavor of the mind is there, the mind is also right then and there remembering all the other times my mind was like that. And to whatever degree there was clarity back then when it was like that, it's going to remember what was the consequence of my mind being like that in the past. All of that information is arriving right now in the present moment. So when we're aware of the anger, we're aware of our previous experiences with anger, we're aware of all the times we saw other people who were angry. All that information is flooding in. So the idea that i got to get in there and stop myself from acting out my anger is... uh it's really simplistic and not really the way it is. Because as that information shows up, it's like there's different forces at play. Part of the force at play is the anger is arising and the mind, because of habit, is identifying with the anger. I'm the one who's experienced this injustice. I'm the one who's going to do something about it. I'm the one who doesn't care about consequences right now. Right, So that that force is there, and mindfulness will reflect that, oh, that's interesting. And then the other forces are there too, like, do you remember when that happened before? Do you remember how much, how complicated things got? How destructive that was? <coughs> so there's, you know, we could expand your comment, Maggie, to the more general comment about ethics or ethical <coughs> conduct. And uh, there's sort of, two approaches to being a good person, an ethical person. One is to create a sense of laws. Don't cheat. Don't yell. Don't lie. You know, and a few more. And then we just uh, become sort of our own inner police person. And, uh, you know, we can create our own set of consequences when we do the wrong thing. Don't do that. You know, you can't watch TV tonight or whatever. Or we can make, we can uh, ground morality in this natural process that has its own integrity when there's awareness. See, we're afraid to just let nature take care of right and wrong. But that's because we're not usually paying attention. But when we're paying attention, it leads to a more integrated kind of morality that is constantly improving itself. And it's not rigid. It's a a living process. Because even when we act out in an unskillful way, if we're paying attention, it immediately gets fed back into the system. The consequences of rationalizing lying, then if we continue to track the experience, if it is in fact unskillful, we should then 
discern that. I mean, the consequences, the tension in the mind, the whatever the fruit of that unskillful action, it gets fed back into the system. And then the mind is just aware, oh yeah, that hurts. That didn't work. That made things worse. So the system, you know, the Buddha is pointing to a way of understanding that's free of any center. So how do we become a moral, kind, loving, wise human being without this reinforcing the sense that I want to be this kind, moral, loving human being? And that heavy trip, like Atlas with the world on its shoulders, you know, I've got to be this perfect human being. That is its own kind of suffering. So how we have to be willing to make mistakes. See, we're going to make mistakes anyway in terms of acting out anger, like getting angry at ourselves for being angry. You know, you just, we're not going to avoid it. So it's better to keep emphasizing the awareness of it. And so like in Buddhism, the precepts of not harming, not stealing, not engaging in sexual misconduct, not lying, not intoxicating the mind, that leads to it making mistakes because of the intoxication. They're considered to be training principles, like we undertake the training so that we're learning about this principle, this value of non-harming. We're not holding it out as a right or wrong, but we're experimenting. We're saying, well, what does that look like? Because there's really no, like, where do you get to the place where there is no harming? I don't see that place. But I really value the training in it and paying attention to it. Yeah, thanks for bringing that up. Morality is a big, you know, we don't often talk about it here at the center, but morality is a big part of the Buddhist teachings, this commitment, or sometimes it's translated as a reverence for life or compassion or this commitment to non-harming. Yeah. Somebody had their hand. Oh, Will. Um, just uh, reflecting on anger and how to work with that skillfully, like, um, I realized that I had this, like, rear head <coughs> of, like, frustration and, uh, and like, grief growing in me uh, for the last couple of months. I have a, a really emotionally taxing job. I work with uh, kids who are in really difficult situations. And so just getting, like, really frustrated with, like, the kind of situation they're in and the school that I work in and, like, the adults and, like, all the problems in the institution that are so, so many. Um, and just kind of like trying to work with that, it's, it's really difficult to keep that awareness sometimes, or often, usually. And so uh, I spent like most of Monday thinking that I was really mad at my girlfriend about something, and I realized, no, it's just a, my job, and it's crazy. So anyway, I spent some time today doing some loving kindness practice, just like really like, Using into it and just being really gentle and realizing like my heart really hurts and has been wounded multiple times, many, many times lately and I just haven't really been like working with that and dealing with that and so like taking that time to kind of feel that pain and that grief and kind of dig down to what's underneath it, which is like a really strong desire for these kids to be respected and to be empowered and to be, you know, like not, you know, not brutalized by the world and, uh, that, like, kind of really connecting with that and working through that really helped me to deal with a lot of that anger that I was feeling towards people and just the world in general. Yeah. And then this is a good example of how, you know, we can, uh, 
if we're feeling a lot of pain or if we see ourselves being upset at our partner, it's so skillful to get interested in causes and conditions like how is this irritation arising? What are the supporting causes? And like Will described, you know, if you trace back, you see that the heart really hurts. And the interesting thing, when we're experiencing a lot of pain, it can be physical, like chronic physical pain, it can be deep emotional trauma, it can be a disgust with the you know, mendacity in the world, the amount of deceit and oppression in the world. But if we're exposed to pain, which we all are to some degree, if we're not bringing awareness and wisdom to that pain, we're going to start being averse. And it's just a question if we turn that aversion toward ourselves or we turn it outward toward somebody else, that we'll find something, in a sense, to beat up. It's just the response to pain without wisdom. Because it's like, uh, you know, flight or flight syndrome, you know, when we're under stress. It's like, it, it triggers this survival response. It's not very intelligent. It's a simplistic genetic response built into the system to close down, to give up, to give up on life, to be despairing, to be nihilistic, or to blame somebody for the pain that I'm experiencing, to blame society, to blame my partner, to blame my body, to blame the society for oppressing the children. But it just makes it easier to say, I'm hurting because you're bad. And it's interesting that that meaning, that conceptual meaning, creates a little relief temporarily, even though it ends up being much more stressful. It creates a little relief because we imagine we're in control of our pain. Because at least I have a story that explains it. I'm hurting because you're bad. Or I'm hurting because I'm bad. Or I'm hurting because the whole world is bad. But at least I have a story that explains why I'm hurting. So what we really want to do is be okay with the initial ambiguity about the pain. So, so much skill arises in life when we learn how to be right in the middle of the very ordinary pain that arises, emotional pain, physical pain, all kinds of different unpleasant experience. And that's not a mistake. You know, it's not a mistake that experiences in life, situations are painful. Some experiences are painful, some are pleasant, and some are neutral. And life just moves through these different flavors of unpleasant, pleasant, and neutral. Like where, where is it written that life shouldn't be painful? Or that life shouldn't be the way that it is? You see, that's an idea that we have in our mind. So the real question, and it's not about that we shouldn't desire that the society be a better place where kids that grow up in certain circumstances don't get the support, the resources they need to have a good life. But what can get in the way of doing what can be done is somehow feeling that the way it is shouldn't be the way it is. 
when it's already the way that it is. You see, we get so stuck there thinking it shouldn't be this way when it is this way. And so the first step to be a skillful, wholehearted response is to acknowledge that sometimes it is like this. You know, sometimes there are injustices. Sometimes the body falls apart. That I'm the one who gets the cancer. You know, instead of thinking it's somebody else gets the cancer. No, no. This time, I'm the one who has the bad car accident. Or I'm the one who loses the job. Or I'm the one, you know, fill in the blank, who's the outsider. Instead of, I'm the one who's the insider. So we have to recognize that, well, yes, sometimes it's like that. So, what do I do? Well, I sit in the middle of it. I learn to clearly acknowledge it's like this, and then because it's like this, this is what's happening in my heart. This is what I'm feeling. This is what I'm seeing. This is how it is. Because then we have balance. And then we're with that balance, we're seeing like, well, how did it become this way? Our mind isn't um, distorted by the anger or by the greed. It has some clarity. So we can see, oh, it became this way because of these causes and conditions. This is a natural arising. Kids being in that situation, that happens when we don't pay attention to these things like justice or jobs or you know whatever it might be all the different components we begin to see all of that so this is the thing is we keep missing cause and effect and we keep attacking sort of what's easy to attack because it's the object that the mind has taken a hold of as the bad guy whether it's herself or external instead of really getting interested in cause and effect. Thanks, Will, for sharing that. Other thoughts about practice that come to mind? Yeah, Sunita. Hello, uh, Mark. Can you... So, something arises, and you're in a social situation where you can't necessarily just be like, hey, I'm just going to be sitting here with my ambiguity, these feelings, because you're having to finish a conversation with somebody else while these feelings have erupted. You're trying to be aware and not lash out at the possible person that's with you or gone. But um, how do you, do you put it aside and say, okay, I'm going to do that? I don't think it's the right place to do it in your meditation practice the next day or the next morning or whatever, but do you go to the bathroom? And do that? I mean, what, what, how do you do that? Well, first, you know, we can have a lot of compassion for ourselves that we're in these situations where strong emotions arise and they're not always very good options. And we it may not be culturally appropriate in that moment to share with those people we're with the um, confusion that our mind has or the inclinations that our mind has. Sometimes it is. And actually it can be very refreshing when people are really honest. You know, I'm really upset right now and I I think it's probably better I not continue the conversation. You know, that 
that's not a bad thing to say to people. It's actually nice modeling. Um, maybe we could pick this up another time. I'll give you a call or I'll send an email, you know, and then and then leave. But uh, at least inwardly, we need to acknowledge that there are a lot of forces at play now in my mind and I want to be careful because they're very seductive and it would be very easy for me to say something. And I've been here before, right? That's what I meant. Like the when we're present to some degree, then each, the moment, the mind rather, or wisdom is sensing what this moment is like and what allows it to get close and to be somewhat clear about what's happening is it recognizes it. So this is the faculty of, of memory, you know, or perception, like I'm perceiving, oh yeah, I know this. I know this defensive state that's being triggered in my heart. Oh yeah, I remember what happens when this gets triggered. You know, all the different ways the mind tends to go when it's like this. And so that's like a wholesome concern arises in the mind. Honey, be careful. Words are dangerous things. I mean, who here hasn't said something that has set in motion something that still hurts? Like some destructive interaction with another person that's still not completely resolved. Probably everybody, you know, has had those experiences with our words or somebody else's words towards us. So more and more what we want to do is just acknowledge that we want to be careful. And we can say it out loud if it's appropriate. You know, I really want to be careful what I say now because I'm noticing I'm, I'm charged. I've, I've got opinions. You know, and just to say that. And, and I, and, you know, I need a little bit more space in my mind to have this conversation. Or we have the conversation and we act out because for whatever reason, rightly or wrongly, the mind assumes or interprets that this is the time to stand up and say what needs to be said. And a lot of times, you know, what we can gain over slowly over time is, are we generally a person who avoids saying what needs to be said? Or are we somebody who says what needs, to, thinks that needs to be said only to realize, no, that wasn't, <laughs> that didn't need to be said or I wasn't the one to say it or it was the wrong time to say it. So if we're somebody who always refrains from speaking up, then we have to start to speak up until we start making mistakes and say too much, right? Because we're always erring on the other side, which is just can be just as harmful to not say what needs to be said. And a lot of times we justify holding back because we don't want to make a mistake. But see, we're missing that, well, that's a mistake. To not speak up is a mistake. It causes harm too. And if we're somebody who tends to always speak up, then we want to err on the side of keeping quiet until we know what that mistake feels like. So there's so much, and this is that, this is what I meant earlier about seeing skill as a natural process instead of me who's supposed to be skillful, but that it's a, an organic thing that grows and develops through success and failures and paying attention. That's how we become wiser, not wanting to be wiser or wanting to avoid mistakes. But we take that desire to 
want to be wise or want to avoid mistakes. And we use that energy to pay attention to cause and effect. Okay, was this skillful? How do I know it was skillful? What is it? What am I seeing that's telling me, that's leading me to say, this was skillful, I was skillful in that moment? Or that was unskillful. How do I know I was unskillful? We should be able to answer that question. When I said that, the mind was contracted with anger. So I wasn't saying something to be clear. I was saying something to hurt the other person. I may have told myself, I need to bring out this information in the conversation. But what the motivation actually was, when I'm paying attention now in hindsight, I wanted that person to be hurt. I was using that word as a gotcha. Or I was refraining from speaking because I was afraid, thinking I'm not good enough, I don't have the right to. That's just a different kind. You know, now we're aiming the sword at ourselves. We're stabbing ourselves. I'm not the, you know, whatever, however we're putting ourselves down because of fear or because of ideas of, you know, I'm no good. That person's better. There's no real, I mean, this is the thing, the Dharma practice, the practice of paying attention, it doesn't tell us what to do. It gives us a process that leads to more skill and more space, more freedom as a human being, more lightness, what you can call love, or that it, that space allows for an inclusive uh, presence with everything. The heart knows how to include everything. But it's not, it doesn't tell us what to do or not do. Just the process that leads to wisdom. Other thoughts from your practice? Yeah, AJ. Uh, so I've been very interested in being honest. Yeah, kind of many pieces. This is a big one for me. Um, and something that kind of keeps coming around is this idea of letting go of outcomes. And, and, and the kind of end up in this paradox sometimes because by letting go of outcomes, uh, taking things personally, both when good things happen or when bad things happen, often I see in other people. Um, when something good happens, they take it personally, and it's like, hey, it's all me, and, and that's dangerous as much as something bad happens, it's that outwardly pointing of, I'm going to blame you or whatever. But then there's a flip side of that too, as well, and there's certain personalities, and I think sometimes I tend towards this, is when something bad happens, I'll aim it towards myself, and sort of negative self-talk blame of, oh, what did I do <coughs> you know, harm somebody else? Because I'm trying to be so interested in what my part might be playing in that. Um, and so then there's dukkha that arises there. I'm just wondering if there's some strategies that can be kind of brought to bear before. Yeah. Well, sometimes our actions are part of why something bad happened. But if we keep looking, see, we don't, we don't stop. Like when we, when we relate something bad that happened to something we said, we don't stop there. We realize, okay, and then that thing that was said, what was that? And we see, well, that wasn't self either. You know, that arose out of certain causes and conditions, me saying that. That was also a natural arising. So in terms of conventional language, we said, we say, I said that and I shouldn't have. But in terms of our actual understanding, we realize that given all those 
conditions that were in play, of course that thing was said in that way. It wasn't, AJ, it wasn't me that said that. It was this natural unfolding process. It was a lawful arising, those words. And it's not to sort of give us off, get us off the hook because in a sense, I'm responsible for whatever was set in motion by what I said or what I didn't do. But in a deeper sense, although responsible, in a deeper sense, I understand that that was a natural process. And now, paying attention to it is also a natural process. And that process we call wisdom, like really reflecting on the lawfulness of how things unfold, makes it less likely we're going to do that again. Because there's an awareness that's seeing the progression, saying that, and suffering. And then that's what teases out, that's what changes the process. I was uh, had a meeting with uh, one of our leaders and teachers here, Nicole Terrace, and she's got a service dog that she's training. It's a puppy, just six months old. And, you know, she came into the meeting with a baggie filled with little bits of sausage because uh, she's been in a wheelchair her whole life, and this dog does all kinds of important things for her. She really needs the dog. And... Uh, <clears throat> So she's just, you know, when the dog does what he's, not the first thing, because he's just getting trained, is how to be in a place with a lot of different people without being a puppy when you're a puppy. You know, wanting to sniff and wanting to go and wanting to play and how to just sit there while she's in a meeting and be okay just sitting there, even though there are a lot of new things to explore. No. Even like she would sometimes throw a bit of sausage down and it wouldn't land close enough. But he was not supposed to go get it because he was supposed to stay put. And of course, when he actually did stay put, he ended up getting more sausage, right? If we can uh, let go of a, a, you know, a relatively pleasant experience but receive an even greater experience, we'll do that. Well, this, for this kind of system to work, we have to pay attention. Life, you know, this, well, in Buddhism we call karma. The lawfulness of intentional actions have consequences. This, I mean, you don't need to believe it, but it's worth checking out because from my point of view, and certainly from the Buddhist point of view, this is how it is. The quality of our intentions, the constricted cons- uh, intentions like anger is a very constricted intention, lust is a constricted intention, they have certain consequences. And more expansive intentions like love for a universal love for all beings, wanting to take care of everybody, including ourselves, these kind of intentions also have consequences, positive consequences. And these, this sort of intention and consequence, it corrects the system if there's awareness. It's only when there's unawareness, ignorance, that things can get really off and neurotic. Like I'm acting out in anger and life just starts to work less and less well for me because I'm a really angry person. So what do I do? I get more angry. See, that's a person not reading the situation correctly, right? But if someone's aware, 
even to some degree, they're going to start catching that the fact that life isn't working very well is related to the constricted motivation acting out anger. And that will tease itself out. The awareness of it teases teases it out. But we need the awareness. So in the way the Buddha taught, I mean, he taught a lot of different things, but basically all of those things he taught will arise if you cultivate the continuity of mindfulness and you direct the mindfulness primarily to the mind itself, to intention itself. You get really good at being present and you use that presence to get interested in your motivations or the intentions, desires in the mind. And you just study them. Okay, this is this is what's active in the mind. And look at what I'm doing. And look what happens. You know. And you could have a desire and you could be afraid of that desire and squash it, and then you look at what happens there. Being afraid of desire doesn't lead to happiness, it leads to repression and getting tight. Acting out desires doesn't lead to happiness. It leads to more dependency. Understanding that desire is just a desire. And sometimes it can be acted out or brought into life without harming, and sometimes it can't. That's called wisdom. You know, understanding like what desires can be lived out without causing harm for ourselves or others. And what sort of desires are best left as just desires. Oh, there's that desire. It feels like this. I don't need to suppress it. I'm not afraid of it. It's not wrong to lust after a person. What's wrong is to think I can't be happy unless I act on that lust. Thanks, AJ. Yeah, I don't know your name. Hi, Judah. This is uh, a question that speaks to you know, a lot of people in any Buddhist center in the Western world. Is, you know, a lot of us, a lot of people keep their traditional faith, but some, you know, a lot of people are traditional kind of out of it. And there's kind of this interesting thing that happens in practice, both for me and other people I've heard, where as you're starting to listen to the stories of the mind, and sometimes when you're you know, transitioning into Buddhism, you're also considering the stories you know, of your past that do more supernatural things, things that aren't necessarily verifiable, like faith-based things, ideas of gods and devils and heaven and hell and stuff. And I can come to a place in my practice where not only do I start to become skeptical of the inner stories and the outer stories, but seeing both my personal stories about those situations in life and relationships and a lot of the large stories not being true, uh, or at least I mean no longer believe a lot of those larger stories are true, I can get to a spot where I'm deeply skeptical of any story that the mind wants to tell. Even though using stories can be really useful, sometimes even if they're semi-delusional stories, like... Once in a while, I've heard like a psychologist or two joke that a little bit of delusion is healthier, does give her happiness, whatever. Well, things are going to turn around and become okay. I'm going to make it through. I'm going to get that promotion, even if you're not. You know, it'll be something you kind of work a little bit harder to sell yourself that happy story. Um, is that, you know, what are your thoughts of that as kind of, I don't know, or just this whole process until you get to a spot where you're deeply enlightened and deeply rooted, you know, in the Dharma? And you kind of handle things where there's no stories at all. You know? Yeah, yeah, it's a really good point you, points you bring up. Well, like you suggest, you know, we really do need stories to operate in the world. 
And it's really about not being confused by them. Um, so we have a story like, I'm a Buddhist practitioner. Mindfulness is really good. And it's more like using the stories to organize energy. You know, like, we, you know, the alarm clock goes off in the morning and the story rises, I gotta get out of bed and get to work. And if I don't, you know, I'll get fired or bad things will happen. So that, that story sort of is uh, our way of organizing that feeling we have, like the dread and the, all the confusing feelings we have in the morning. So, and it also allows us to work together in community because we can have a shared story like we do to some degree right now, tonight. You know, that being aware, cultivating wisdom is really allows us to be skillful. But ultimately, what we're learning to trust is cause and effect. It's really the big, like I've been talking about a lot tonight, this is the beginning of wisdom. And just understanding that things are lawful. So Buddhism is really pragmatic in this way. Suffering and the end of suffering. This is like the Buddha in many times, you know, he would say, I only teach one thing, suffering and the end of suffering. And so, ultimately these stories aren't important. I mean, what what do you really care about? What do I really care about? Well, I care about the actual experience of suffering. Now, how do, we, how do I know I'm suffering? Or if you're not suffering right now, how do I know I'm not suffering right now? So we really want to ground our life and our practice into something that's very real and direct. Now, the thing about stories is it's very easy for stories to become universal, like you suggested, like this story is true, metaphysically true for all. But our experience is fundamentally subjective. So this is why it really makes sense for us to operate in this very personal, subjective way. Suffering and the end of suffering. Not metaphysically suffering and the end of suffering. You know, the Buddha did his work, supposedly, but he didn't do our work. Right? His awakening, whatever that was, was not our awakening. Because the ignorance, the confusion exists here, this is where the work needs to be done. And so the work is a subjective, we're dealing with a subjective experience. Suffering is a subjective experience. Suffering arises for deluded human beings. It exists within that dynamic. And so we have to deal with it pragmatically right here as the actual experience of stress and the release of that stress. And all the stories we want to tell and use, they should really be grounded on this very functional, direct way. So when we, as a bunch of people who are interested in the teachings of the Buddha, or what we say sometimes interested in Dharma practice, or this path of awakening, when we talk to each other, it's really nice. It doesn't mean we can't use the dogma from the tradition, you know, and there are a lot of stories in Buddhism like you find in other religious traditions. But if we do use those stories, we want them to somehow directly relate to suffering and the end of suffering from a subjective point of view. Because that's actually what we care about. 
And it's how we can care about each other. It's like, you have a heart like I have a heart. You know, you experience release and love and freedom like I sometimes experience that. So I care about you. I care about your dynamic of suffering and the the end of suffering in the same way I care about my own. So this is our bridge to compassion, to caring about other beings, is having our life and our spiritual practice grounded in this very immediate experience of stress and the release from stress. And if our stories that we've used don't relate to that, it's probably extra, can be put aside for a while. Sometimes those old stories then eventually are very useful. Like, oh, now I see how that relates to this experience. It's like a metaphor, you know, that somehow illuminates this. That a lot of those metaphors are forced or have gotten off track over the centuries. You know, they're not actually useful um, sort of... uh, in Buddhism, we call them skillful means, meaning that concept or that teaching actually can illuminate our experience, clarify what's here and now for us. I hope that helps. It was good, good comment. We have time for maybe one or two more. Yeah, say your name. Can you just expand on that a little bit more? That give me a subjective uh, story of, about suffering and then suffering, like in examples, like in, you know. Someone might take personally that is a story and grounded in those teachings. Well, like even something, you know, an old story like uh, the apple in the tree, and is it Genesis in the Bible, you know? And uh, of course, it's the woman who gets the guy in trouble. But the it's an interesting metaphor about their people are in paradise, free, uninhibited not ashamed, the good life, right? And then what happens? Well, the snake, you know, convinces them that they can attain knowledge, right? That was the tree of knowledge. Eat from the tree of knowledge and then you'll own it. You'll have it. Like freedom wasn't enough. Somebody had the thought, I want it. You know, I want to have the knowledge. I want to, and so that was the downfall. So then we can see that too. It's like right now in this moment, what actually is in the way of contentment, contentedness, or just the release of the heart? It doesn't mean there isn't global warming, injustice. It doesn't mean we have enough money for retirement. But this moment, what's actually in the way of the heart releasing, putting down the load? And just being sensitive, being real. And we could be in this state of relative release and peace. And then we could see reaching for the apple. You know, like, oh yeah. And see, oftentimes when we actually do touch some experience of ease, then we want to tell somebody about it. Oh, wait till I tell my wife. Or... We want to put icing on the cake. You know, we've got this nice cake just feeling at home in the present moment. And then, yeah, but it would be so much nicer, you know, if I had one of those fancy benches or if I, you know, whatever it might be. Or we want to go on a retreat instead of just 
resting in the moment as it is. So in all kinds of little ways, we reach for the apple. We think that we lose the direct experience that of the release in the moment that's here, and we imagine it would be better if it... So with this idea of becoming, like if the moment could become this kind of moment, that would be better. Or if I could get rid of this, that would be better. And that's that reaching. So a lot of the old stories can be, with some work maybe, can be useful. But what really helps is not thinking about the old stories. It's about understanding your experience. And I tell you, this is very true for the teachings of the Buddha. I mean, it's really good to learn the teachings of the Buddha. But mostly what uh, helps is to study your own experience. And then the teachings come alive. Then you begin to understand, oh, that's why the Buddha said that. That's why the teacher says that. Because we see it directly in our experience. Like, it is, this is how it is. And then the conceptual model makes sense. And then we can use a conceptual model to remember our direct experience. That's the real value of concepts, ideas, words, is that they're stand-ins for an, an experience, a direct experience. And so we, it, it's like a wormhole back to the experience. Even a word like peace or love, which are so overused, if we are regularly touching the actual experience of peace or the actual experience of love or metta, we use that word because love is so overused, but that universal, inclusive friendliness of the heart. Then when I bring to mind the word love, I can refine that experience here and now. Or I bring the word up peace and I can refine that experience. So even words, let alone stories, they're very useful placeholders that can uh, uh, ground us in our experience. have to leave it here. Thanks for all your great questions and comments. We can just take a few seconds, just enough time to take a few breaths together. Feeling at home, right in the middle of this body and this mind. Right in the middle of the community, all the communities we inhabit. Right in the middle of this life. And again, finding the deep aspiration in the heart to be able to remain right in the middle with love, compassion, forgiveness, and wisdom. May we become the causes for real peace in our hearts and in the world. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org. Thank you for listening. 
To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.